0: お風呂を沸かします<音楽> Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI office in Covent Garden. My name is Andrew Hunter-Murray and I'm sitting here with James Harkin, Anna Tazzynski and our special guest this week is Kariad Lloyd. Uh, Kariad is a comedian we all know. She's been on QI a load of times. She's in an improvised show called Ostentatious, uh, which is a Jane Austen-based improvised comedy with me. And she also is the presenter and host and producer and everything of the podcast Griefcast, which is about grief and about uh, people you've lost, but it's also very uplifting and charming and funny and wonderful. So do give that a listen. Okay, starting with fact number one this week, and that is Carriad Lloyd.
1: My fact is that Unity Mitford was the only person to be BFFs with Churchill and... Hitler.
0: She was best fr- best friends forever. Just to, for any uh, for any '80s kids so, in the room.
1: Yeah, she was definitely best buddies, bezies with Hitler. She was very bezies with Hitler, um, but she was also very old family friends with Churchill. And at some point, uh, just before war broke out, so she was living in Germany, uh, basically completely in Hitler's inner circle. She was completely there, and she used to write. To her friend Winston and beg him very regularly to make peace with Hitler because she really believed in both countries. Now, caveat yes, she was a massive fascist. So, obviously, <laughs> not like saying I love her, but she did really believe that England and Germany could work together and become this incredible superpower. And she always said, if they go to war, I'll kill myself. I'll kill because these are my two greatest selves, my country. And spoiler alert, The moment war broke out, she went into a park and she shot herself in the head. But, spoiler, spoiler alert, (laughs) it didn't work. She survived with the bullet in her head. Wow. But uh, then she did
0: also die due to an infection. But much later,
1: much, much later. So Hitler, her BFF... Um, when she did shoot herself in the head, Hitler felt so bad. Obviously, it was his fault. Hashtag, you caused the war. Um, he arranged for a train to take her to Switzerland, and then her mother, and I think it was Debo, the younger sister, came and got her. But he, he, you know, the war's breaking out, everyone's leaving countries. Hitler made sure that she got out of Germany, and he knew she was going back to Britain.
2: And he funded her healthcare and stuff, yeah. didn't he? It's very easy to accidentally read the story and
1: go, oh, that's
2: quite
0: nice I know,
1: yes. Him. I know, again, caveat, he was a massive fascist, but also... <laughs> (laughs) I think he was quite big into it. He was one
0: of the worst, I would say. You know, there's a theory about Mm, Hitler funding all this. So the theory is that uh, her sister, Deborah, and her mother took her home after she uh, tried to kill herself. Uh, She then recuperated at a little uh, nursing home in a village called Wiggington in Oxfordshire. The home was a maternity home. And there is a story. This
1: is rubbish. There is a story
0: (laughs) from the woman who ran the home that she may have had a baby. And Mm. the baby... Had a tiny (laughs) moustache.
1: And was a massive fascist.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and so the journalist who wrote about this, she asked the woman who she thought the father might be, and and she said, uh, well, my mother always said it was Hitler's. Although there is no record of this happening, so it's probable there is not a secret Hitler love child.
1: But they definitely copped off, didn't they? No, also, that's... Really? Yeah, there's a lot of... Like, it was very suspicious. In the inner circle... All the Germans hated her. They were like, there's this British woman who Hitler, literally, she would like advise him and wind him up on stuff. And she was extremely jealous of uh, Eva Braun as well.
2: And so Eva she, Braun was very jealous of her, though, yeah, right? Yeah, so
1: Unity definitely was in love with him. But seemed, what I've read seems to be like that nothing happened. Basically, mm. he was kind of using her because she was extremely useful. And the other weird thing about Unity is her middle name was Valkyrie unity valkyrie mitford and she was born in the town of swastika oh, that's so weird so <laughs> weird and so it is <laughs> said that he was very um superstitious and it was said when he found this stuff out about her and she was a six foot blonde blue-eyed woman that he mm. kind of felt like she was very lucky but apparently they ne- like nothing ever he apparently there was no way they ever slept together but she uh. definitely would have. and she just she used to kind of hang out with other fascists did she
3: sleep <laughs> with Churchill?
1: No, but they, her sister, Decker, was married to Esmond Romilly, who the big rumour is that he was Churchill's secret son. And it was all sort of hidden that he was oh, actually really? a nephew. But yeah. I
0: thought Churchill was quite happily married, though. <laughs> <laughs> Not like that massive fascist Hitler. <laughs> so this oh, yeah. town of uh, Swastika is yes. in Ontario.
1: Yes.
3: Uh, and they wanted to change the name... Um, during the war to Winston <laughs> um, because of obvious reasons yeah. uh, and they even did it I think or th- at least they got pretty close but then everyone who was living there said no and so they took down all the new signs and they wow. said no we're, we were called swastika before Hitler came along yeah. we came up with the idea first why should we change our names
1: and they were named after the the symbol which was a good luck symbol in is it Hindi or yeah.
0: Hinduism. Hinduism yeah Hinduism
1: so that's you know
0: they but, were there beforehand doesn't Dan have a fact about that guy, I think possibly also in Canada, who was called Adolf Hitler Yeah, and was asked if you are going to change your name and he said, I'm not going to let one guy <laughs> ruin the name and he didn't change his name. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, the um, Midfords, They were amaz-
1: amazing family. Yeah, there literally isn't one of them that wasn't somehow involved in something.
2: So Unity was... They, well, they were all bizarre, but yeah. she was bizarre. So she said that... Her and her sister grew up, her to be a fascist, her sister, one of her sisters Decker, to be a communist. Yes. And she said that they used to scratch, she would scratch a swastika and her sister would scratch a hammer and sickle into the window of the bedroom that they shared together and the scratches were still there. Yeah. And so they really pursued their dreams. Yeah. There was an article in The <laughs> Guardian about how they're kind of inspiring in a twisted way yeah. because she was like, I'm in love with Hitler, I'm going to go track him down. And she did and she went to Germany and she sat in a cafe that he frequented she month every after day. month.
1: Yeah, she sat there every single day until eventually he was like who's that six foot blonde woman that keeps staring at me and that's how she got to know him and apparently she she, told, she wrote to Decker and said this is my plan like any good obsessed teenager this is how I'm going to get him and, her and De- so her and Decker Jessica Mitford <laughs> shared a room and they had a chalk line down the middle of the room and at one end was a bust of Lenin and the other end was a picture of Hitler Wow. But they were obviously still sisters and loved each other very much and then completely Hmm. opposite, but obviously growing up in exactly the same household. Do you
3: think maybe like sometimes brothers and sisters (laughs) go against their brothers and sisters, right?
1: Yeah, well, they they sort of, if you read any of the Mitford stuff, there's an amazing um, biography by Mary S. Lovell, which is the, the... the best Mitford s one which says that they all of them had these incredibly obsessive personalities mm. and filled them with so either fascism or communism or Pam who was obsessed with farming <laughs> <laughs> she, she sounds so like so. the best yeah.
2: one
0: Pam is the one that Pam's the, the one, one, that Pam's the one
2: everyone forgets but Pam she introduced forgets. a new
1: breed of chicken yes. into this country <laughs> Yeah. So... and Pam apparently was quite a wit and like Evelyn Moore was in love with her I think. but the
0: only people who heard her jokes were the chickens <laughs> yeah exactly that was sad with a
1: six, so there was siblings, yeah, yeah. And there's a brother who died in the war. Oh. and then you have Nancy, who was a very famous writer. Diana, who obviously also being of a fascist, they do not, they Diana, don't do well on. Diana fascists. was the
0: mistress of Oswald Mosley, head she of the, the British. She was
1: the wife, the wife, eventual wife of Oswald Mosley. Well, yeah, I was
0: yeah. just referring to the courting
1: phase.
3: <laughs> <laughs> uh, she was the one who famously said Hitler had beautiful blue eyes. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. did she tell Stephen
0: Fry this?
3: Well, well Stephen definitely she, mentioned it on QI. He yeah. said,
0: he says, that, Stephen Fry says that she said to him, "Of course, you never met." Hitler did you <laughs>
3: <laughs> Yeah,
1: she was an incredible woman Diana and she was said to be like the most beautiful woman of her age like men were literally falling over and then she married a Guinness Had an affair, not a pint (laughs) again. And then had an affair with Oswald Mosley, and then ended up marrying him, and then
2: went to prison. Went to
1: prison, and she was the only um, during the war they were interred. And she and uh, another woman were allowed their husbands in Holloway prison. So she was in Holloway Women's Prison, and then Oswald was allowed to join her because Churchill said that was okay because he was mates with the family.
3: Um, uh, Nancy Metford was famous for yeah. doing the upper class and lower class writing. Yes, you
1: and non-you yeah. was a famous essay she wrote Yeah, about um, so the correct what, ways. What
3: things show you off as being yes. posh or not posh, right? Yes. Have you
0: got a test for us? Uh,
3: I couldn't do one. <laughs> um, how do you pronounce oh, the yeah. word which refers to a large cat with a mane? Uh, a a lion? Lion. No, nope. not posh, not posh. No. Lion? Oh, you're pretty posh. <laughs> I think. Oh, I'm
1: putting it on. I'm putting uh, it on. It
3: rhymes with barn, apparently. Lawn. Yeah. How do you pronounce the game which I like to play, where I hit little balls around with a stick in a field? Uh,
0: golf.
2: Goo. Golf. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Goof.
3: Golf. Golf. No. Oh yeah, no
2: golf.
1: said golf.
3: Like Darren Golf.
1: Going for a game of golf. <laughs> oh
0: wow. Yeah. There was a study recently that found the Queen has become less posh over the course mm. of her reign. Mm. As in, if you listen to her vows from 1953, oh, yeah. she's still quite posh. Oh, she's still quite Not posh, Not as yeah. posh,
1: though. If you listen to the old recordings, it's almost yeah. like mm. it sounds almost... But that's her language.
3: accent is less posh. She still lives in a massive
1: <laughs> She hasn't kept it real recently, no. yeah. But she talks quite street, I think, is what we're saying. She, <laughs> she lives she, in a palace, mm. but she talks pretty street. She says BFF. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
2: Um, wasn't the non-you-you thing, part of it was about that thing where people who want to be posh put put on yes. posh words? Mm. So things like serviette instead of napkin. So it wasn't about telling the posh from the working class. It was about telling the posh from the kind of middle class who wanted to be...
0: The really posh, don't say the posh word. They just call it a napkin. napkin. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas the social climber says a serviette. Exactly. What if you call it a mouth face wiper? (laughs) You're just a plain
1: old weirdo. (laughs) Yeah, Nancy was very like acerbic and witty about, so she was sort of taking the piss out of people.
3: There was a lot of piss-taking involved, wasn't there? Yeah. Yeah. Apparently a gentleman, when he's drunk, may become amorous or maudlin or vomit in public, but he would never become truculent.
1: Mm. (laughs) That's how you know Andy's so common. (laughs) (laughs) Regularly truculent. Fighty
0: fighty. Okay, it's time for fact number two, and that is Anna.
2: My fact this week is that in the 1920s, doctors prescribed intentionally terrifying flights in aeroplanes to cure deafness.
3: <laughs> Why really
1: did they think that that would? What was their reason? Well, then?
3: I would think maybe because it makes your ears pop. Yeah, but like is it that? I, it yeah. was
1: not that, no. It was the
2: shock factor. So
1: it actually,
2: <laughs> <laughs> it actually started with someone who couldn't speak. Uh, it was an army serviceman who I think lost the ability to speak during the First World War. And this is in 1921. This doctor called Charles McInerney said it was a psychological problem and that the solution would be... <laughs> going into a plane and being treated to a series of loop-the-loops and nose dives and spins and things that made him think he was going to die and lo and behold he was he took this prescription, he did it he stepped off the plane and he said I don't know if I can speak anymore and it turned out he could because he said that and then it started being touted as a cure for everything including deafness so deaf flights were a thing that was quite commonly prescribed and Charles Lindbergh, very famous um, obviously aviator, Mm. on his business card he had deaf flights as one of the things that he offered <laughs> really? to take deaf people up and the idea the was
3: that people might have suffered from these things for psychological reasons you were saying yeah. like shell shocky kind of thing Yeah. Or...
1: so were they take? Yeah, was it only if you develop deafness or was it more like oh I've been deaf since birth
0: there were some people who were deaf since birth so mm-hmm. for example uh, in 1930 there was a boxer called Fred Mahan his nickname was Dummy uh, which is a cruel nickname because he'd been deaf since the age of eight months. Oh, my God. So he took a flight in 1930. It was designed to cure his hearing. It was designed to cure his hearing with a parachute jump that he was going to take <laughs> out of the plane, okay? Oh in front of a crowd of thousands. The parachute failed to open. Oh, my God. And he died.
1: Where's the happy ending, Andy? Yeah.
0: Uh, uh, <laughs> no, probably in the next fact, I'm afraid. No <laughs> oh, my God. No, the, and sometimes people did die.
2: The, the idea also was that it had to be a surprise so the <laughs> Patients were told that...
0: Where are we going?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry, just put on this rucksack.
2: (laughs) They were told they were just going in a flight because it was the altitude that cured the deafness. Right. Um, And then they'd go up in the flight and then it would be a horrible shock when you suddenly started nose-diving towards the ground or spinning around in circles. Because obviously if you knew it was going to happen,
3: then the cure wasn't going to be be as
1: effective. Have you heard about this flight that happened in... um, When did it happen? In 1969 with Alan Funt. Have you heard this before?
3: I don't think I've ever heard the word Alan, Alan Funt, Funt before. I think <laughs> i remember.
1: He was the host of a prank show in America that was like absolutely massive. Uh, kind of like Candid Camera sort yeah. of you've been, you know, you've been framed. It was called Candid Camera. <laughs> okay. I feel like what, a Funt. What a Funt. Yeah. Yeah. Alan Funt hosted Candid Camera which is like the original You've Been Framed and he was hugely, hugely famous as much as I, I would say Jeremy Beadle was in his day mm. and he was on a flight with his family and they had a camera crew because they were going to film like this new um, prank show and it, um, got taken hostage so the plane a guy stands up and and it was at the time apparently there was loads of this happening and they were just constantly in 969 being taken to Cuba it was like quite Mm. fashionable so everyone starts panicking then some of the passengers see Alan Funt and go oh it's a prank, and it wasn't a prank. Oh. So Alan Funt standing up, he's like, "It's not a prank," which obviously is what Alan Funt would do if it was a prank. <laughs> so the whole plane starts laughing and relaxing because they think it's a prank, and I think they even got flown to Cuba and they were on the ground for like five hours with everyone really relaxed, thinking, <laughs> "In a minute, <laughs> yeah." It seems that the whole plane thinking, "In a minute, the camera's going to come out. We're all going to laugh." And they were winding him up the whole time, and he was with his wife and child, and the uh, the daughter has recounted it and said, like, they just thought they just he was getting more. More frustrated and upset oh because no one would believe well, the hijacker. him. No, Alan Funt. Well, Alan Funt.
0: Eventually, Funt hijacked the plane himself. Yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> take well, me I mean... to anywhere apart from Cuba.
0: <laughs> it did happen
3: a lot. I remember Andy had a fact where there was a guy who said, "Take me to Cuba," but the flight was already going to. Oh Cuba. yeah. <laughs> oh
4: my god. That's
0: a, that's a book of heroic failures classic. That yeah, one. Yeah. yeah. Um, Charles Lindbergh. Oh yeah. yeah. One of his other specialities listed on his business card. Which is an amazing business card, wow. by the way, yeah. including death flights. Uh, one of the other things he offered was a plane change in midair.
2: Yeah. What? And this was a
0: trick in early aerial circuses where you would just climb out of the plane you were in or flying and climb into another plane next to you.
3: That's, would you do that if you're traveling and you'd do it for an exchange or is it a trick?
0: Is a trick, right?
4: I was going <laughs> to so say, that
2: was anyone... what changing your flight was in the olden days.
4: If anyone from
0: Ryanair is listening, they will be considering that. <laughs> he was a real uh, daredevil in some ways. So mm. Lindbergh, he did um, New York to Paris yes. in 1924. I did not know this thing about it. He uh, had to get rid of all non-essential equipment, make the plane as light as possible. So he took out all non-essential equipment and then he put a big fuel tank on the front of the plane so he could have as much fuel as he needed. Unfortunately, that meant he could not see out in front of him.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm not even kidding. Oh, my
0: God. To see out of the plane in front of him, he had a few options. He installed a periscope in the cockpit... Oh my god. He also sometimes just had to open the right hand door to peek out <laughs> in front
4: of the front. Oh
1: and
0: my his, god. His final option was just to turn the plane sideways for a bit.
1: That's how I drive. <laughs> it does work. It does. <laughs>
2: Um, But yeah, um, aerial acrobatics was super popular in the 1920s. It was this very specific phase because a lot of people learned to fly in the First World War and then they realised they could make a living out of it. And barnstorming, it was called, and it became this very popular thing. And I can't tell if it was... Uh, I think the etymology of it is vaguely unclear. It's either because people would often do these amazing aerial acrobatics in like fields and people would stand by a barn and watch, but also quite a common trick they'd do is to fly through a barn. So they'd open the doors wow. of a barn and then you had to fly your plane through the barn and come out the other end.
0: Is that where the trope of bursting into a barn and then you burst out the other end and all the chickens are, you know, flapping around the madly? Tro- that
1: fact, you know, it happens in every show. <laughs> it's a, it's a sort of Seinfeld t- runs into a barn.
0: <laughs> it happens less in... <laughs> <laughs> <showing this egg>.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, but is that obviously where the word barnstorm?
3: It was a real barnstormer. I think it is. From I that, think it is. <laughs> that. Yeah, I've yeah. seen videos of them going
0: flying through, and I'm sure that must be where it comes from.
2: Yeah, it must, must be. be right. Yeah,
0: they. I think they played some stunt games of tennis <gasps> on planes. No, oh yeah. my god, on the, the wings, on the wings, it? from one wing to another. There are a few photos of people. Doing oh it's wing walking you know normally yeah. you're you're just sort of discreetly strapped to the plane you're not standing completely free because obviously you'd immediately fall off. Um, Did that
2: mean you had to hit the ball ahead of where <laughs> the person was at yeah. the time?
0: Yeah, and you know, how it. does physics work, Andy? I think yeah. the person who really <laughs> suffers is the ball boy. <laughs> <laughs> There's a guy called Ormer Orme Locklear who was a 20s stunt pilot. He I think was the first person to fly from one plane to another in mid air, possibly. Um, sorry, fly from one plane sorry, to another. Sorry, sorry, climb. He, he launched oh, a smaller plane <laughs> out of the. Wind (laughs)
2: of a jumbo jet. (laughs) It's incredible.
0: Um, So Orma Locklear was a stunt pilot in the 20s. In a film film called The Great Air Robbery, here's one stunt he did. He climbed down from a plane to a speeding car, fought the baddie for a bit, kicked the baddie out of the car, then he grabbed the plane's undercarriage and climbed back into it as the car overturned and crashed.
1: You should never climb back into someone's undercarriage. (laughs) Very
2: rude. <laughs> um, do you know another old cure for deafness around about this time, in the 1920s and before, was to make your own artificial eardrum or have an artificial eardrum inserted? But um, you could order them, uh, I was going to say online, and they sent you um, things that were often made of elk's claw or pig's bladder or fish bone or something oh. called gold beater's skin, which I didn't know about, but your dad probably would, Andy, because it's in, used in the gold leaf making process oh, and wow. apparently it's animal intestine. But anyway, Ooh. you put this on a little stick and you put it in your ear, Ooh. and it apparently replaced your eardrum. It didn't work, but <laughs> it was invented in 1853 or pioneered by a doctor called Joseph Toynbee, who is Polly Toynbee's great grandfather. Wow. Is that
3: right? Isn't that oh. weird? That's good. I read the other day, and I haven't looked into this, I just saw the headline that your eardrum moves um, the same way as your eyes move. So when your eyes kind of move to the left or right, your eardrums slightly move around. Like
1: cats' ears. You know, when they like cats are obviously just doing it themselves, our eardrums are obviously doing it. Yeah. Oh, my God. I can
2: kind of feel it if you move (laughs)
1: your eyes around. I I think that might be your ear bones moving in your jaw. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, it might be. All right. The other
1: thing with, um, you know, like, well... No, I can
0: feel it, too. (laughs) It might be your ear
1: bones. You have ear bones, too. (laughs) It's not just Anna. Is it the ear
0: bones? No, I'm just moving my eyes. We, oh. There's something moving in there. Yeah, but I
1: think that's your jaw. I think that's your jaw moving, which is connecting to your ear. But why would
0: my jaw move when I'm just moving my eyes?
1: Because you're moving the muscles around your eyes to look that way. Carrie, we're not really into logical, fact-based explanations here
2: so this is kind of a psychological affliction that they thought could be cured by flying and there was another fashion for curing psychological afflictions in about the 1920s and this was pioneered by this doctor called Henry Cotton and I'd never heard of this but he thought that all madness or depression or anxiety was caused by physical stuff and could all be cured by surgery and so he used to just pull more and more body parts out of people until they were cured so he'd start with the teeth so you'd go
3: in and you'd pull out all of your teeth if you were mad and then Um, if you still he'd go for another body part he'd keep on going so then um, he like that game operation <laughs>
1: <it>? <laughs> I bet he invented it he was like I could. Yeah, this is fun it was a lot like operation
2: he'd go tonsils next and then adenoids and then he'd remove your colon if you still weren't you remove cured. your colon I feel,
1: like I feel like you need your colon don't you, you I feel like what, what about
2: you the can... appendix no he did acknowledge I mean the...
1: once my stomach's gone yes my anxiety is going to go because I'm <laughs> trying to deal with not having a stomach yeah. so I'm probably just going to be really upset probably you know, not like... little
3: platypuses don't have stomachs don't, don't they? they? No, they used to be very anxious. <laughs> <laughs> no, they don't.
1: And um, they used to. This happened to my granny. Um, uh, they used to pull out all your teeth as prevention for tooth decay. Oh, so they when did, you, yeah, they? when you were like eighteen or twenty-one, and this was offered to her, she was extremely poor, working-class lady, and so they said, "Well, to save you some money and worrying about your teeth, just take them all out, lose them out." Did you go for yeah. it? Yes, yeah, she had out. Whole every single tooth removed
2: at my twenty-one granny was
0: offered it. Didn't didn't take wise him off. Wise lady, wise lady. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, this He's guy did drunk. pull out his own children's and wife's teeth as soon as he had children and a
0: wife. But as as that as was... he had children and a wife. It, <laughs> at what point in the ceremony or the reception did he do it? The
1: christening. There's uh, one in there.
0: They you know, now kiss the bride. <laughs> well, just one thing before I do that. You may now plyer the bride's mouth open. <laughs> okay, it's time for fact number three, and that is James Huckett.
3: Okay, my fact this week is that there is a patch of snow in Scotland that fell 11 years ago and has just melted this week. That is amazing. It's sad. It's very sad.
1: I thought it was amazing, then when I looked into it, I realised it was sad. (laughs) Super sad. At first I was like, wow, oh...
3: Yeah, so there are these people who kind of always looking for the last bit of snow that's on the Scottish mountains. And most years, it's still there when it starts snowing again. So it's always going to be there. And actually, it always melts from the top. So the bit at the bottom will have been there for the whole time. But this week, and I'm going on a bit of a limb because as we're doing this podcast, I think there might still be a tiny bit there, (laughs) but it's like a bit the size of a rucksack or something. (laughs) There's hardly anything. And it looks like it's on its last legs. Probably we're recording this on September 29th. And I think by the 30th or by the start of October, it'll definitely be gone.
2: God, but you're in trouble if there's an unexpected blizzard in Scotland over the next (laughs) week. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hasn't it only disappeared six times in the last 300 years or something mad like that? So.
0: Yeah, I read it as, in the last 300 years, there have only been six times when there's been no snow on the ground in Britain.
1: God, yeah, You know, like, every time you listen to the news at the moment, you feel like it's end of days. And then you read a story like that where you go, and the snow has also gone. <laughs> <laughs> and you think, oh, God.
3: But it's got a name. Yeah. yeah and there's so a name. few of them. I think the one that I'm talking about is called the Sphinx. Ah. Yeah. And it's because there's a rock above it that looks a bit like the Sphinx. Oh, I didn't know Egypt. that was the reason. Okay.
0: Yeah. What well, do like you it? think it was? I yeah. thought it was like the patch of snow asked you a riddle when you get there, <laughs> and if you answer wrong, it folds you into its cold heart. <laughs> I don't know.
2: That's how it keeps going. <laughs> yeah. it keeps on absorbing. Needs like one cause...
1: more virgin to come <laughs> and ask <it> a question. <laughs> Andy, whenever. Hey. You say
0: <laughs> so these people are very interesting guys there's no patch hunters yes Mm. and so this we only know about this because of this guy Ian Cameron yeah and he's like one of the main
3: guys and he often goes and tries to find these patches and then we'll take photos of them and then eventually pretty much if Ian Cameron says they're not there anymore they're probably not there anymore and he's got a Facebook group which you can go on and you know every few days he posts and he's like oh there's still a little bit left here but probably not tomorrow
0: but, and all of the data he gathers is really useful for climate scientists, because mm. he's got a record mm. stretching back years and years yeah. now, which is very useful in terms of the temperature on the ground.
1: And this is what they think it's climate change. Is that what? Yeah. W- well, the...
0: he is quite circumspect about it. He no. says, look, I'm just going to leave it to the scientists yeah. to decide this kind of stuff.
1: So. I wish more people would take that. Uh, yeah.
3: <laughs> I suppose it seems pretty likely that it's climate change, right?
0: It's, well, you know what? I, like Ian, I'm going to leave it to the scientists. <laughs> but yeah, it clearly is. Yeah. Um, but he told the New Statesman when they, uh, they spoke to him, he said... It might sound weird to say, but it's like seeing an elderly relative or an old friend. You're slightly disappointed if it's not in as good a condition.
1: <laughs> and you're really disappointed if you turn up and it's not there. <laughs> yeah. He it's is bad. all about the snow, isn't he? Yeah, I
2: think he just, he only cares about these snow patches. And he says he. <laughs> I'm sure he cares about other
0: things. His poor yeah. wife
1: covering herself in snow. Look at me, Ian. Look at me. His children wearing snow hats, eating snow.
0: Desperately putting carrots out in front of their noses.
1: Daddy! Are we? snow now no you're hot you're hot and you're nothing to me I'm sorry if it's not like that being Ian's child I would
0: like to counter and say the FT reported he is an enthusiast but he is not mad So. Tell
3: that to his poor melting <laughs> wife. Yeah, I think Ian Cameron is a bit of a hero because <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. he's like looking at this kind of thing and not no one else is. But actually, it's like you say, really good data and no, he's amazing. It's
1: amazing. And obviously, well, people, it needs recording. People do seem to be
2: taking notice. There's a whole there's a whole Wikipedia article called Snow Patches in Scotland, um, which I suspect maybe Ian Cameron wrote this. <laughs> <laughs> There are things like... It's so weird. It does seem to be a big thing based on this. So it describes a relatively little-known snow patch, which was Scotland's largest at the time of writing. It said, this patch does not appear in the known literature on the subject, so it may be very under-recorded.
1: <laughs> Only the hipsters uh, know about that one. Exactly. <laughs> it's really obscure. You probably haven't heard of it. <laughs> Do you want some good news? Sure. Yeah. Do you want to know about the world's tallest snow woman? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, it's I feel Mrs. like... Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> so her name is Olympia, and she's... 30 feet shorter than the Statue of Liberty. Uh, without, yeah, Her arms consist of 27 foot tall evergreens and uh, she has 16 skis for eyelashes and <laughs> 2,000 feet of rope hair. <laughs> like, mm. she's amazing. Wow. And five red auto tires for lips, which were painted by the Mahusuk Kids Association. So basically, the whole town yeah. got together and made this the, no, this, obviously-
0: this from the photo, this absolute travesty of a snow person. <laughs> I want to know what the carrot is made of,
3: because presumably that's the you. size of a bus or
1: something. The <laughs> carrot nose is made of muslin, chicken wire and wood grain by the MSAD number 44 Elementary School Children. Uh, yeah, it's I have in to say, if, if,
0: if that magically came to life and approached me one night, I would run for the hills.
1: Andy, why is that? Why would that happen? Well, like
0: in, that, like the, like in the Snowman, you know, oh, I the, see. the Christmas thing. I would not go walking yeah. in the air with that. Um, <laughs> Beast. I would Aww. sit indoors with a hairdryer on full blast if it came near me.
2: I mean, it's not a hundred percent clear. Just looking at this
0: from a bit of a distance, yes. that she is a woman. Well, the no, they've
1: given it eyelashes in the classic yeah. cartoon version a, of gender. I think yes. a, I think
0: a snow vagina would be a bit much. <laughs>
1: You don't see many snow penises on the old snowman, do you? You don't. Yeah. Walking, Wait, is, is, is
0: it, it, uh, maybe you you don't, see. Is it hanging
1: down and walking in the air? I didn't notice. <laughs> you see a lot
0: of snow penises. I have
1: to say. <laughs> um,
0: have you guys heard about the uh, oldest ever ice?
3: No. no. Is it in Antarctica?
0: Yes, it is. <clears throat> and it was discovered this year. <clears throat> it dates back, guys, 2.7 million years. What? Yeah. Oh, is that they, the one
3: that Putin drank? I sincerely hope not. (laughs) Do you not remember that? He did that. They drilled down to some really old ice and then (laughs) melted it, and Putin drank it. What? Just dropped it in a whiskey or something? He's going to live forever.
0: Uh, no, oh, so was he wasn't. De- he wasn't down at the bottom of the hole eating the ice when they drilled down to him. Um, yeah, no. So, as a climate scientist, keep on drilling down because the snow that falls and then compacts in Antarctica, obviously, uh, not obviously, but it has tiny bubbles of air which tell you a huge amount about the climate
4: yeah. two
0: million years ago, and you can find out how much carbon dioxide there was and what that means for the temperature of the Earth, uh, which is going to be very useful for us over the next century. But this this year in April. Uh, there was a freezer in Canada where they had ice cores mm-hmm. that dated back thousands and thousands <gasps> of years. Yeah, you're way ahead of me, Kerry No. There was a freezer malfunction. No. Yeah, and they melted. <gasps> guys.
2: It's
1: I've wh- had that with ice cream, and it's really disappointing. <laughs> yeah. It is so disappointing. Well, imagine if there
0: was 22,000 years of history in your ice cream.
1: <laughs> okay, if it's Queen and Black's chocolate, I'd be as upset as I would be.
0: And the, the director of the Canadian Ice Core Archives, a guy called Martin Sharp, and he said, Fuck! <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is a bad day for Martin Sharp.
0: <laughs> he said, I've had better days. <laughs> so
4: oh, you're not far off. Not off.
0: <laughs> um, but the, by a massive stroke of luck, which sounds crazy, but there was a massive stroke of luck, 90% of it was saved wow. solely because a uh, camera crew had been filming a documentary about... This ice core archive, and they had said, Can we move most of it into this other freezer, which has better lighting?
4: No way.
2: Wow. So thank God, wow. most of it was safe. That's amazing. Is it like an ice cream where if it refreezes, it's not oh, yeah. quite
1: as good? It's a bit I think that's right, yeah. yeah. And then you still get... eat it, but you think, Oh, I should have eaten this earlier.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. hard
0: to shove the little bubbles of yeah. <laughs> ancient carbon dioxide back in at the right height. Yeah, yeah.
2: I love them though, because they're like time capsules, but from literally millions of years ago. I kind of find the fact that these bubbles are 2.7 million years old more exciting than the ice, because it's like a little world even though it doesn't have the cool stuff like the blue peter badge or whatever inside <laughs> it it's still like a little time capsule uh, apparently
3: you're not supposed to make snowmen in um, antarctica really, really? it's Why? taboo according to the telegraph <laughs> taboo they're
1: so uptight what?
2: in Antarctica.
3: <laughs> <laughs> apparently um the rules are designed to prevent the antarctic's animals from being disturbed uh, right what? yeah that's what fair what enough animals penguins i don't know
1: they might be like what the is that
3: yeah
0: you
1: know hey, that's my snow. Imagine if I came into your house and rolled up all your cushions and made a giant cushion man and you yeah. woke up.
0: Yeah, it does sound like I'd wake up because that sounds like that <laughs> happened in a dream, I think, the yeah. other day.
1: so it for the penguins. It's they're like, just yeah. mind their own business and suddenly someone's taken all their like, Antarctica house. Antarctica
0: had no land animals, permanent land animals, apart from that tiny fly. It's got penguins.
1: <laughs> I think it doesn't have Yeah, a but they, they,
0: they live yeah. in the sea. The only I think oh, we, did, on. we did this on QI. <laughs> the only permanent land animal It's a niche. Is a midge mid with no wings.
1: Hey, and what, the midge doesn't have feelings? Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's even worse for the midge, because
3: uh, yeah. it could be quite a small snowman, but to them it's going to look like that one from Maine. <laughs> <they're true>. yeah. <laughs> the princess. Okay, the ice I, princess.
0: I now understand.
1: And yeah, the point, because what about like the, the Antarctic bases they've built and all the science stations? Like No one's like, hey, we're disturbing them, are they? <laughs> yeah.
2: No, the penguins are fine with that. Yeah, they're fine. Well, that, that must look like the
0: Death Star to the midges. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, it's time for a final fact. That is my fact this week. My fact is that the first person ever to use the word sponge cake was Jane Austen. Ooh. Oh.
1: <laughs> Good old Jane.
0: Good old Jane. Now we mentioned this because, Carrie, you are in an improvised comedy group called Ostentatious, I which is am. about Jane Austen.
1: Yeah, I am, A-H-M. Great. Who's in that with me? Uh,
0: John Pergo. Uh, John yeah. Joseph Mopurgo yeah. oh, is in that so Rachel great. Paris.
2: <laughs> he's yeah. a great
1: comic, isn't
3: he, John Mopurgo? He's amazing.
1: Yeah he, yeah, he does very well. And is also in that group with me.
3: I am. I'm in Austen, yeah. yes. yes. And so. you guys have got some big shows coming up. We
1: have. We're going to the West End uh, for three dates, the Piccadilly Theatre. We're going December 5th, January 23rd, and mm, special Valentine's Day, February 13th. Mm. Go to the Day before, that's what all the fashionable oh. couples are doing. <laughs> um, yeah.
3: And then on February the fourteenth, you can do something actually fun. Not yeah. Romantic. yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly.
1: At the Piccadilly Theatre at seven thirty. Yeah, Ostentatious are playing yeah. their biggest dates yet.
3: And we've both seen it, and it's amazing. Isn't it's it? fantastic. Yeah.
0: So sponge cake.
1: So we know our Jane Austen, right, Andy?
0: We know our Jane Austen, <laughs> but she coined the word sponge cake, and she's got a few citations in the Oxford English Dictionary. And this is so it doesn't mean that she invented the sponge cake.
1: She's the first no. person just to write it down.
0: The f- well, they called it something else before her.
1: <laughs> Did they call it cake sponge? <laughs> yeah. It's,
0: so the first record of the word right. comes from her writings. I'm but not the, even convinced it's a word. Well, is it two words or is it one word? I thought she
1: wrote it down hyphenated.
0: She wrote it down Literally. hyphenated in a letter to her sister. She said, you know how interesting the purchase of a sponge cake is to me. And I, I think it was the famous Jane Austen sense of humour coming in there. <laughs> um, so it's interesting, the first mention of a sponge cake is it being given a sick burn in a letter <laughs> by Jane Austen.
1: Which is a shame because sponge cake is a great thing. Yeah.
0: But do you know, are words that she mm-hmm. e- either coined or first usage... The first evidence of it comes from her. Mm, I went wow. through the OED and found oh, as many as I could.
1: Did you read the whole thing? <laughs> well. I've only started uh, at the beginning, can not through
3: it. fact no. <laughs> um, antibilious. Ooh. Uh, they're all kind great. of very Austin y words, the ones. Mm. Like there's coddle, cousinly. She, she invented coddle? She didn't invent them, I suppose, but she's the first example we have of okay. it. Okay.
1: Don't you have a? Isn't it something you coddle an egg?
3: Yeah. Ah. Yeah. So maybe it's coddle in just that specific term, as yeah. in to mollycoddle. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, irrepressible obtrusiveness. Mm. Tituppy. What's titoppy Tituppy. It's the
1: study of tits.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> Titography.
0: Sorry. I'm sorry. I was It's
3: <laughs> not <laughs> Oh,
0: I'm getting confused. Uh,
3: Tituppy. I think it means like a tit up. <laughs>
1: Mm. oh yes and I suppose
3: a tit-up is a mistake or something Uh, no
1: Darcy's always tit-hopping isn't he (laughs) (laughs) that ball went really (laughs) (laughs) tit-hopping that's how Lizzie felt Uh, and
3: gad as in to gad about (gasps) you're kidding the The verbal use of gad I think that's
1: better than sponge cake to be honest yes it is gad about they're quite niche words. Yeah, aren't yeah that's they? what I think as it's
2: well. It's not like Shakespeare who just invented the and and, and, <laughs> table and all the main words.
1: Before that, we just literally <laughs> left a gap. Yeah.
0: Um, I've got some mind blowing news on that, Anna. Oh, yeah. So Shakespeare's always, always said that Shakespeare invented 1700 words, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm always saying it. And so the, the words include bump, hurry, road. I mean, it's. It's nonsense. So the reason that he gets all these citations is because the first um, team of people compiling the Oxford English Dictionary knew his works intimately because they were all lexicographers. So when they were thinking, oh, well, where's the word critical? You know, they say, oh, there is a critical in uh, whatever play it was. And then now that we've got better technology, we're going back and we're finding way earlier ones. Mm. So we thought that the word puke was a Shakespearean coinage. Turns out it dates back to 1465. It was almost two centuries before Shakespeare wrote it.
1: I bet Chaucer was saying the word road. Come on. Canterbury yeah. Tales. It wasn't <laughs> gone on a road.
0: Yeah, because it would be weird if Shakespeare's plays were just full of words that no one had heard <laughs> of. Yeah. The audience, the audience be would so be confusing. baffled. Imagine the reviews, you know. <laughs> yeah,
1: but you know people say now, oh, I find Shakespeare hard to understand. Yeah. Perhaps this was happening <laughs> in the 16th century. People are like, I don't know what it's on about. I can't it's really awesome follow it. Road. Road. Yeah. <laughs> um, did you see the amazing website writelikeaustin.com? No. It's no. A read, so it tells you, you can type in a word and it will tell you how many times she used it or she ever so? Oh. She only used the word "swoon" four times. Oh. Wow. which For people who watch *Ostentatious*, will know we use that <laughs> word quite a lot. She used the word "curtsy" six times. She never used the word "Marvel." So, it, the <laughs> words. No. That you think she, the word Marvel.
2: Marvel. she had
3: invented superheroes? No, now. no. <laughs> she was oh, mainly
1: using the word DC.
3: Oh. Um,
2: <laughs> she did. Um, there were things that I think that she may have invented, like so. The phrase "Tom, Dick, or Harry," I think, comes from her, and you can imagine I've her that, thinking. Yeah. That that up from her own head, right? Or dog-tired comes yeah, from Jane yeah. Austen again. Like, that's the kind of thing maybe she had made that's
1: up. good writing. Yeah,
2: <laughs> if I've told you once, I've told you a hundred times.
0: No, she came up with that. Yeah,
2: that was from her. That is a
0: biggie. That's probably her, I'd say that's her lasting achievement. Yeah, but
3: you're only I, saying that because you've been told that a lot of times by your parents,
4: <laughs>
2: right?
3: I think it's about puke. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: um,
0: um,
3: Jane Austen wrote
2: not very well. well, according to some, according to this professor, this oh. is
3: really interesting. I'm, I'm bristling. I've got to a lot of people as well. I've not... a
1: lot of men throughout the years have written harsh reviews of her. Though, well, Virginia
0: Woolf didn't like her much. Oh
1: no, that is
2: well, true. But Virginia... Well, Virginia Woolf was a man. <laughs> <laughs> it's extremely interesting you raise Virginia Woolf. So this is a study done by a professor called Catherine Sutherland, um, and basically what she's saying is Jane Austen didn't write like we think she wrote. That was the work of an editor. So I uh, agree with Carrie and Andy that like her novels are perfection in terms mm. of like the construction of the sentences mm. in the English language. But what this academic says is that that was all the editor. And if you look at her works, her first drafts of works, she writes totally differently. What, they're, and just, actually, they're
0: just <laughs> daubings with crayon on the back of a mirror it's that a she Darcy, posed to her publisher. Big,
1: nice man, came in a room, <laughs> yeah, and he was like, so nice. Well, she was more experimental. So it
2: actually sounds like she was more interesting. And oh. she said that she wrote a bit more like Virginia Woolf. So for instance, wow. when she had exchanges between characters, like speech exchanges, mm. she wouldn't separate out one speaker from another so it would all be like blurred in a more stream of consciousness kind of way which is a,
1: yeah keeping the idea of speech which he's so good at Her Yeah, speech is so good yeah well, wow. the editor was the one who had to separate it out.
2: And um, she couldn't spell, so she um, didn't didn't know which went first out of I and E. She didn't know punctuation. Well, the, the, but also, the,
1: loads of people rules... didn't spell. Yeah, the rules hadn't been set. You and non-you as... had not been set, Yeah. Though. Yes,
2: the rules hadn't been set. I think maybe she was a little bit worse than other writers at the time. And also, she didn't separate things into paragraphs mm. very well. So well apparently... To be fair,
1: she, she was a woman in the like 19th century, or the one before that, the 18th century. <laughs> she hadn't had a lot of education, had she? Look,
2: I'm not saying she didn't do very well. <laughs> yeah,
3: we're really bristling, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> Could it be that she didn't try and write sponge cake, she just misspelled, like, sponge, <laughs> <laughs> sponge cock?
1: What you book is how, that in, James? You know
0: how interesting the purchase of a sponge cock is to me.
1: <laughs> that is a way more interesting letter, to be fair, to be fair.
0: Um, Virginia Woolf
3: said that... Um, one of the reasons that she was so popular is there are 25 elderly gentlemen living in the neighbourhood of London who resent any slight upon her genius as if it were an insult to the chastity of their aunts. Wow. Oh, that's a lovely sentence.
1: Yeah. A equally brilliant writer, Virginia Woolf.
2: I know, yeah. it's so sad. They're both yeah. so fantastic and yet didn't like each other. Well, also didn't have many <laughs> opinions on Virginia
0: There will come in the years after my death a woman who is crap <laughs> and I will call her Virginia Woolf but spell
3: Woolf wrong. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but didn't Charlotte Bronte hate her as well? There's a quote. Oh, did from, she? Yeah, there, I'm sure there's a quote from Bronte that said, oh. "I read quite like I read that, and I recognise no love that I've ever known." I
2: can imagine the Brontes yeah. not getting along. Yeah, with but they yeah. all
0: howling on a moor somewhere. It's a very <laughs> different vibe. But wasn't it? it that when the Brontes
3: came out, they were really popular, and Jane Austen went out of
0: favour for a long completely time, completely out of favour? And yeah. actually, it's I think it's partly only due to cinema that she's back in. So silent movies, very bad, and of- improvised comedy. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. We,
1: we have affected um. her sales quite heavily
0: yeah. <laughs> silent movies I think would have been terrible for Austin because, yeah, it's um, words. because it's all conversation I think the first adaptation was 1940 of Pride and Press.
1: yes an amazing film black and white film of starring Pride and uh, Laurence
0: Olivier yes, as you. Lizzie Bennet uh, <laughs> in his most versatile <laughs> um, yeah
1: there's been some amazing spin-offs I don't know if anyone looked into this mm-hmm. like I mean obviously the Austin industry uh, myself and Andy are employed by is huge and there's lots of fan fiction and lots of people writing other books so I just looked up like top the top 20 of other books there's just like definitely not Mr Darcy Prom and Prejudice Colonel Brandon's Diary Pride and Prejudice and Zombies Mr Darcy Takes a Wife Pride and Prejudice continues <laughs> they read like titles from our show wow. like they're an incredible amounts. I read
3: that a lot of people do um, this fan fiction because there's not enough sex in the actual yes stuff.
1: a lot of of it is sexy. Darcy's Passions Pride and Prejudice Retold Through His Eyes by Regina Jeffers, um, I think is a little bit uh, more sexy than her stuff, because she doesn't really go into it, it has to be said. Darcy and Elizabeth Nights and Days at Pemberley (laughs) These are all available to buy, guys More
3: Nights and Days, I reckon
1: (laughs) Hot Nights at Pemberley. Mr. Darcy's Undoing a Pride and Prejudice variation.
2: (laughs) Do you know her sexiest line, maybe? Or the line that most Overtly refers to sex. No. It's pretty it with
0: SpongeCocks. <laughs> <laughs> I w- would like to see SpongeCock SquarePants, the kids TV show.
1: <laughs> oh my god.
2: Um, this is just a real classic Jane Austen line. It's um, in Mansfield Park. Fanny Price is the main character. And fanny, is it Fanny
1: Price is the rude name?
2: It's Fanny. It's fanny. <laughs> um, no, it's a reference to her getting pregnant. And the sentence is just about, it's one of the last sentences. It's about how Fanny Price and her husband have come into some money just after they had been married long enough to begin to want an increase of income.
0: That's not the rudest line in Mansfield Park.
2: It is an overt reference to sex, though.
0: Well, would you like an overt reference to something else? You know I would. (laughs) It's in Mansfield Park as well, and there's a character called Mary Crawford, who's a bad, bad girl, and (laughs) um, she's talking about the Admiralty, and she says she used to know a load of admirals, and she says, of rears and vices I saw enough.
2: Which of rears and rears, Vice. Rear, and, Vices, and
0: Vice Which are both kinds of Admiral, but they're also both references to something else.
3: I don't get it. So Vice's as in woodwork.
1: <laughs> yes, okay. Rear is in the back
2: of the room. Yes.
0: Yeah, no, and that's an incredibly filthy line.
2: That is quite raunchy. People I don't are. not know that.
0: People are, the academic community is divided over whether it refers to sodomy or spanking. But it's, <laughs> it's one of the two.
1: She's trying uh, to hint that Mary oh, Crawford oh, is a very saucy not not nice lady mm. <clears throat> mm. and that our main character is in trouble so that's what she's doing
3: a good character study she, really. she could have said that she's known a lot of semen in
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and with yeah, her bad spelling she <laughs> could have
2: made that quite yeah. obvious Um you can play Jane Austen role playing game now which I yeah. really <laughs> want to play Adam's life. <laughs> <this>? <laughs> so if you don't want to fork out for ostentatious <laughs> you could no there's this online role playing game and it sounds really fun um, and oh yeah I think
1: I saw that the video game yeah, yeah you
2: get to pick a character and then you um, have all these interactions so some a Guardian journalist went and played it and started out by making this character who lost her handkerchief and then mm. found it and then oh. went for a walk and bumped into a gentleman <laughs> um, although the, the writer did say that while she was going on this virtual walk she saw a, a bunch of sheep's stacked on top of each other, so some of the algorithms in the game (laughs) need some ironing out, she said.
0: Every Austen novel, there's a discrete sheep stack.
1: Uh, (laughs) My, my, Lord Willoughby, the sheep are stacked so fine today.
0: (laughs) About ten years ago, um, an Austen buff and an author sent off some of her manuscripts to various British publishers, (gasps) seeing if he could get them published, and he made very slight changes to the title and the characters. And um, the pseudonym he used was Alison Lady as in A Lady, which is Austin's mm-hmm. pseudonym. Um, it was not
1: the world's greatest pseudonym, is it? A <laughs> no, lady. but, you know,
0: um, he's the guy who runs the Jane Austen Festival in Bath. Oh, um, we well, you know him well. They all rejected the manuscripts, oh. um, and only one of them spotted the fact that it was almost identical to Austin's work. He got one letter back uh, from Penguin. He just sent them Pride and Prejudice, and they wrote back saying... <laughs> Thank you for your recent letter and chapters from your book, First Impressions. It seems like a really original and interesting read. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to
3: say I really do like Penguin, though, don't you? Oh, sure. Random House <laughs> are an excellent publisher. Oh, gosh. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Yeah, and thank amazing. God they haven't spotted that our book is just a complete rip-off of Bleak House.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> OK, that's it. That's all of our facts. Thank you very much indeed for listening. We will be back again next week with another podcast. Uh, But until then You can check us out on Twitter We are at No Such Thing And we all have Individual Twitter accounts I'm on At Andrew Hunter M James At
2: James Harkin Carriad, At Lady Carriad. And Anna You can email Podcast at QI.com
0: Yeah And if you want to Come and see us on tour We've just announced A whole new bunch of tour dates We're going all over the UK And you can see that At QI.com Slash Fish Events uh, you can also uh, see our book we're publishing a book which is coming out very soon you can get that by going to com slash fish slash fish or google the book of the year which is what it's called and if you want to see Cariad, uh and me in Ostentatious
1: you can go to the ATG website or you can go to ostentatiousimpro.com forward slash shows and that has all the booking links for all our London shows and our UK tour as well
0: lovely okay we'll see you next week thank you very much for listening goodbye